Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate Venus Blissful! After what, baby, come on! There is rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Dinosaur bosses? God put those here to test our faith. Damn lie, I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! Welcome back to another Deep Share. Tonight, I'm here with someone I've wanted to talk to for quite a while, and we finally got it figured out. And, uh, well, I've always kind of looked into the topics of the occult and, with you know, with a grain of salt, because so many people have so many different theories. And uh, this man in particular, I've really jived with a lot of interesting theories that he's put forward on his blog, The Secret Son. So please welcome Christopher Knowles. Chris, how's it going, man? It's going great. Glad we got this together. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's been a while and I'm glad we got it going. So for my audience who may not be familiar with your work, uh, would you mind giving a little bit of background about how you got into your blog, The Secret Sun? You started back in like 2007, right? Correct. Yeah, this is the 15th year coming up on the 15th year anniversary. Congratulations, man. Yeah. Um, Well, it, it had an interesting genesis. I mean, I've been doing you know, what's, what came to be called synchromistic work since the early 90s. But I was sort of operating on a Jungian framework. I was really interested in, Jung was uh, really interested in a book he wrote called Man and His Symbols. And that kind of had a huge influence on me. And I just started doing that work myself. Um, what happened is that I got a book deal for Our Gods Wear Spandex. And, uh, you know, I really needed to push it because there was a lot of resistance to the book from you know mainstream comic book world yeah which is you know very infantile world that doesn't like their illusions being challenged mm-hmm. so um i started the blog initially to put all these ideas forward you know all first of all a lot of the stuff that ended up getting cut on the final draft of the book because if you're familiar with book publishing um Hmm. commercial book publishing they they are just ridiculous with the word counts they just slash them to the bone and and that's one of the reasons why i stopped working for those companies because it's just it's just pathetic it's just it's you can't make a a coherent argument with the word counts they give you Mm -hmm. and it was the when i did the uh, secret history of rock and roll book that really just said i'm all right i'm done i'm out yeah, because uh, you know, I, I 
I, I, I had to, I had to fight tooth and nail to get a decent word count. And, you know, even then it was just ridiculous. And like, you know, the book publishers, they don't do anything. You have to do your own promotion and everything. It's just, mm. it's a pathetic, pathetic little world. Um, I, I, I don't know why everybody doesn't just self-publish. You know, if you have a platform and you have a following, it's total waste of time to go through a publisher. Believe me. In this day and age, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not worth your time. And they just, you know, they just What's... nickel and dime you to death. So, yeah. so, but I had, so before I did uh, the secret son, I had a blog. Do you remember Zanga yeah. on that platform Zanga? Ooh, yeah. yeah. So I had a Zanga, I had a Zanga blog oh, okay. uh, that I did for a while. And then um, this friend of mine asked me to join Tribe. I don't remember Tribe.net. Oh, wow. uh, it kind of got real weird <laughs> real These quick. Some old terms coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so like I mean, dial-up so, days. <laughs> yeah, right? So, I mean, it started out, like, really interesting. And then it just became, like, you know, big pickup scene for swingers and stuff. But so I was doing some work on that. And then I, I was sort of cross-posting from the stuff I was writing on Tribe to Zanga. Mm-hmm. And then I got this book deal and I needed to, you know, I needed to do some promotion. And uh, like I said, I ran into a lot of hostility from the uh, mainstream comics world and so on. I mean, it was, it was just not. I'm not assuming a good thing. that one of the biggest criticisms was like that you're just looking too far into things or something that, that sounds like <laughs> a typical surface level response from, from any norm, normal person looking into just comic books for the fun of it. Right. Well, the thing you have to realize about people who are into comic books is that they're looking to escape reality. Sure. And if you challenge that, if you open the door in any way, to let sort of the sunlight in on their little fantasy worlds, they get very upset about it. They get very mm-hmm. offended. Oh, and yeah. plus I, I, I kind of like, I don't know. I think I misread the audience a little bit. Cause I was uh, on this big anti nineties comics kick, uh, like superhero comics. And mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of people kind of got offended by that. Well, you know, I don't care. It's, Oh, what, it's ripping, all the old, the ripping those apart or something? Yeah, well, you know, like all the, the stuff in the early 90s, the image stuff, and, yeah. you know, a lot of the soup, this, what they call the chromium age. And mm-hmm. the thing is, is that, you know, it was at that point in time that I started working for Marvel. I mean, I was working for Marvel when there was still Toy Biz. Oh, wow, you know, I didn't I was, even know that, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I worked for them for like 25 years. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was doing a lot <laughs> of... Well, it's it's funny too because I remember one time uh, my wife and and I and I think one of my sons went into a, a no it's actually I think it was both of my sons we went into a, the Toys R Us in here and like one half of the aisle the action figure aisle was all my stuff like it was oh. all my stuff it's like just a wall of Chris Knowles <laughs> oh wow that's cool so uh, yeah 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 so uh, so then I you know I I did work for like the movies and stuff for like I said, 25 years. And now, I mean, that whole thing is just collapsing. So but, now my um, frame of reference for the backlash that you got uh, is painted much in much more detail. The amount of criticism you must have received for a book bashing, or not bashing, just kind of pulling back the cover of the, the sheath or what, what have you of the comic book world. Yeah, I can see how that would have, yeah. Well, the other like, thing too is that this was the whole height of like the whole... Um, fedora era let's just say you know when like the the online skeptics and atheists were really oh yeah 
prominent really dominant you know like the whole richard dawkins sam, sam harris, harris was king yeah yeah and <laughs> amazing randy and just all these weirdos and freaks yep and um you know it's interesting because i was just at war with that stuff from day one and it turns out i was right <laughs> that's um, awesome i was with them for the longest time before i was like wait a minute yeah. they're missing half the story <laughs> yeah well at least yeah, yeah at least. <laughs> um, but you know the thing is is that i grew up reading comics i mean i started reading by reading comics and and this is like 1970 maybe uh maybe was, i mean i was three three and a half years old when I started reading. And I, I can remember to this day, like how it happened. I was underneath, my, so my mother was a musician, right? And she was, we're, I was always just dragged around from all these different places. And I was at um, uh, her, her, um, her partner's house, you know, her musical partner, this woman and her husband and her family, they lived in Marshfield, really nice house in Marshfield. And I was underneath the, the dining room table and I had like this coverless Superboy 80 page giant that, you know, I got from like, you know, my grandmother had it from when my uncles were kids. And I just started understanding what the words meant. Wow. You know what I mean? Like I, I just started putting it together. Like it was like, just like that. So, um, you know, and I was sick a lot too. So I had a lot of time to just sit around and read and everything. But anyway, the point is, is that I was reading comics like in the seventies when like, you know, like Alan Moore kind of comics were not unusual. It was like you had a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. conspiracy, occult, uh, paranormal, uh, UFOs. I mean, you name it. Right. That it was, was all like, that, that's, that's what the, comic, the guys were doing because it was a lot of these hippie freaks, you know. I remember like, so I, I started, I went to work uh, for Comic Book Artist Magazine in the late nineties. I mean, it was a, just a, it was a part-time thing, but I was like an associate editor and I did a lot of interviews and I remember interviewing, uh, gosh, I forget who it was. I think it was Terry Austin who was an X-Men inker. And, um, you know, he talked about how these guys would just like, uh, just trip balls and just wander around Manhattan all night in the seventies. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, just yeah. like, death wish kind of stuff <laughs> and uh, but you know it really showed you know with all the cosmic freak out kind of stuff and right and but you know Watchmen. and then yeah well Watchmen was a bit later but yeah. like jack jack kirby like all the crazy stuff he was doing because mm -hmm. i am convinced that that you know because he had he was a, a you know frontline combat guy reconnaissance guy I'm, I'm convinced that he had ptsd and they dosed him with something Probably. In the 60s in like a VA hospital because he just went from being just like, you know, pretty standard, uh, but, you know, exciting kind of comic product. Be just being, everything was just buzzing energy and cosmic freak outs and, and all the rest of it. And just totally psychedelic. Like drastic change. Overnight. 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 I mean, you can just look at the point where it just, you know, like, like Fantastic Four or whatever. And then like the next cover is like, you know what I mean? So he just, he just, I don't know. I think, I think acid and all that kind of stuff had a lot to do with it. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, so, you know, that's, that's the stuff that I grew up reading. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was natural to me. And I, I didn't understand all the hostility that I was getting from all these like geeks. But, um, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, I mean, I went to uh, the Kubert school for a year. Kubert school is like a big comic book art school. Mm -hmm. in dover that's why i'm down in jersey for the first place but um oh, okay but uh you know i just i was so incredibly disillusioned you know and i and i did i did a few comics here and there but it's it's so friggin' tedious i mean you yeah. really have to be like deep in the spectrum to do that work on a regular basis it's so 
friggin' boring. I don't think people really understand how boring that work is. And how like, you just need a special kind of brain to do that kind of work. But anyway, so like I said, yeah, I mean, the, um, our God's Way spandex was really kind of the impetus for it. And then it just, you know, totally went in all these different directions from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those who haven't read it and it's a fantastic book, I recommend it to everybody. Uh, could you go into a little bit of what you talk about in the, in that book? Because I feel like it's in a way, it's a big foundation, obviously, to what you still talk about today in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how it started. Sure. Okay. I'll tell you how it started. So I was working in New York for years, right? I was, I was actually in the Empire State Building for, oh gosh, how long? Uh, what, 88 to 95? So it'd be like seven years. Seven, eight years, yeah. Um, I was working in the Empire State Building, you know, right there on 33rd Street. And then I had um, a buddy of mine was from Columbia. You know, he came from Columbia and, and he started out before he became an artist, he was doing delivery, you know, delivery work. So he knew like the ins and outs of all these like places around Grand Central, Madison Avenue, uh, like uh, Murray Hill near the UN. So he knew like the ins and outs and he, he would take me on these tours, right? When you go into these lobbies and you swear to God, it, it was like walking into like an, a pagan temple from like the first century bc i mean it was all just done up i mean a lot of this comes from like the uh, art deco period and the um sort of the the neoclassical revival period and so on but um i was just stunned by how much of there was of, of the there was and then going to rockefeller center which is just basically a giant open air temple to mithras mm-hmm. and then of course you got the big hermetic temple of um grand central station and it's like most people just walk around and they don't notice it. They don't just like look up a little. And if you just look up a little, like I said, go into some of these lobbies, or whatever, you just start poking around. It just, it boggles your mind. Mm-hmm. And to me, like I put myself in the head of all these like comic book artists in the, uh, you know, the thirties and forties, these kids, you know, coming in, you know, a lot of them from like Brooklyn or whatever, Bronx, Lower East Side, you know, coming into like downtown Manhattan, midtown Manhattan and just seeing like, you know, the gods everywhere, right? And, mm. you know, and that's why you had so many characters in the comics that were based on the gods, you know what I mean? Like directly, like the Flash was, you know, obviously Mercury and Superman was obviously Hercules and yeah, and Batman is the devil, right? You know, the Batman and so on. And and Wonder Woman is, is Athena. I mean, just up and down the line. And there's, there's just so many of these things, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it just occurred to me that it was like, there was some sort of transmission from like the ancient world to like all this neoclassicism that you saw in the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That everybody was doing. I mean, like the you know, Germans and the Russians and the Amer- English, it was just really popular. Right. I mean, it's sort of, sort of come to be associated with fascism, but you know, it was just, it was everywhere. It was universal. So, um, you know, it just occurred to me, like, what, what was the, what's the midpoint here? You know, so we've got like the ancient world, right? And then we've got this neoclassical revival stuff, late 18th century, I'm mean, late 19th century. Like, how are we getting from that into the comic books? And then I realized that it's like, if you look at a lot of these occult groups going back to like the Industrial Revolution, Victorian era in England, 
um, there was a huge crossover between these groups and like quote unquote fantastic fiction. You know what I'm saying? The love these there was this a huge influence. So theosophy got really, really big. Right. And theosophy was incredibly influential on the superheroes. So this is the early superheroes. We're talking like, you know, Tarzan, John Carter Mars, both Egoris Barrows, he was huge into the the theosophy stuff. Um, Doc Savage, the Shadow, uh, the Spider. I mean, all these characters in that were the the original superheroes, right? They, were, they didn't wear like the costumes. Like the first superhero really to wear the costume was the Phantom, and that's a whole other discussion. But mm-hmm. they were they were superheroes, and it's like you know, Batman is just the Shadow. It's just a total ripoff of the Shadow, right? I mean, Superman mm-hmm. incorporates uh, Doc Savage and also this novel, this pulp novel called Gladiator. I mean, it's like these these are just kids, and they're just ripping off the stuff. I mean, sometimes it's just recycled, just, like out just absolutely like outright tracing shit you know what i mean mm-hmm. just like tracing stuff over and then putting a different costume on it so um but i realized that it was the uh it was the occult revolution of the late 19th century that was feeding this stuff into the popular culture because then you have people like hp lovecraft and uh robert e howard and sax romer you know sax romer was huge into the occult Dion yep. fortune you know it's probably better better known as a cultist than she is as a novelist but she was she was writing like uh you know occult detective stuff so there's this, this whole like very rich world where pulp and the occult were kind of coalescing you know on top of all this uh you know neoclassical godlike uh imagery that these kids would have been seeing you know, and they're, they're going into midtown Manhattan to pick up jobs and stuff or work, you know, at the studios, whatever, whatever they were doing, you know, it was all new to them. And it's like the missing ingredient for the superheroes that came to be during the forties was the gods, like literally the gods. I mean, the gods that kids would be seeing everywhere. Right. You know I mean? But it was, it, and it was not only just like in the city, but it was, you know, it was in the culture as well. So, um, you know, and then I realized that, that that's how it all came together. You know, that's how it all came together. And in the 60s, when the superheroes really make a huge comeback, because the superheroes were kind of dead after the war. I mean, it was mm-hmm. kind of over. Um, you know, like they kept a lot of these books being published to, to just keep the trademarks and copyrights fresh. But a lot of these, you know, I mean, they're just selling for shit. And then we saw in... Um, the early 60s and you know late 50s you know like what's called the silver age and it starts with uh the flash and and, all, and hawkman a lot of these dc characters and then you know the fantastic four spider-man hulk the avengers you know, mm-hmm. iron man all these characters that just made billions and billions of dollars for disney you know start up in the early 80s so a lot so a lot of what's happening in that incarnation is uh the quote-unquote space age right you know because uh, when s- the whole Sputnik thing and um, Yuri Gagarin and all this kind of stuff really got this whole Cold War competition going on. But it was also all the MK Ultra stuff that was seeping into the culture, right? And and also, you know, so it's like you have this mix with the MK Ultra stuff and all this other kind of thing. And then I realized that another thing that was really firing it is that there was this huge explosion of movies from Italy in the late 50s called uh, Sword... Uh, 
peplum. That was the Italian name, but it was sword and sandal, right? And it was all because there was a Hercules movie made with a bodybuilder named Steve Reeves. That was a huge hit. And, you know, the Italians were just great knockoff artists, and they did just a ton of knockoffs of these characters and so on. And that was like, that brought, and, you know, that was be like every uh, grindhouse and, and drive-in theater that you can imagine. And that's like, it's like, that's how the gods reinsert themselves into the timeline, through, through mm. these kind of like junk culture artifacts. So that's, that's really like basically the, um, the basic argument that I put forward, which I didn't think would be, I, to me, it doesn't seem terribly um, controversial. I mean, it's all pretty well documented. I mean, you can draw a pretty clear timeline for all this stuff. I didn't understand why people were resistant to it, but mm -hmm. I didn't understand, you know, the full um, desire or, you know, need to uh, disentangle yourself from anything re remotely resembling reality. But I got some really funny, bad reviews. And I'd, I'd love to get the, uh, the Comics Journal, and they don't publish it anymore, but they wrote this like really hilariously over the top negative review of it. And it's like, I know I know why they wrote it because this guy was showing up at the blog and, and leaving these comments and stuff and people were just busting on him. Mm -hmm. So he was, you know, he's like, oh, you know, that fucking guy is readers of, insulting me i'm gonna go after his book but anyway um <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is is that um so what had happened is that the secret sun really kind of takes off with like the 2008 election presidential election because i start noticing all this like occult symbolism being woven into that you know particularly the stairway to sirius you know orion mm. and the glyph of sirius and also orion um was associated with the Nephilim. Uh, you know, the belt of Orion was associated with the Nephilim. So, um, hmm. so that was a huge, you know, and just going into all this serious stuff. And there was a lot of like weird kind of solar, you know, like all these kind of um, occult symbolic things kind of go in, it's just like anything else. They're just like fads and and uh trends and so on and just started following that but unfortunately at the same time i started getting real sick so um you know i wasn't really able to take it anywhere and you know that the um blog kind of like just was on you know it's like on a holding pattern until may 18th 2017 when chris cornell died and then just it just everything just exploded completely and uh you know and that led to all the siren stuff and um you know it was like it was phase two and it was interesting too because it was 10 years after i started or almost 10 years so it was like phase two and then there was the whole thing in in, in las vegas you know i've told the story before but when all that was going down with mandalay bay and everything um i was on i was on the radio that night with Richard Hoagland and his show at the time was being broadcast out of Las Vegas. So this stuff all starts going down um, as we're recording. Right. Whoa. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, we kept trying to like, you know, so I told him, I said, listen, you know, this, this thing is just crazy. There's all the symbolism stuff. I want to do a show on it. And like, every time we started to do a show, like the, the feed would get cut and like all this stuff was going on. Like, and finally he just, he just quit that station and went to like a, I don't know, block talk radio or something, you know, but, uh, mm. 
um, it was crazy. That talk about synchronicities, right? Yes, but yes. it was like I had been talking about uh, Las Vegas, um, you know, since Chris Cornell died because of Heaven Las Vegas, and that's you know that sort of ties in the siren stuff and ties in his death and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and then you know it's just kept growing and growing from that point on. But it's like I've always been like. Um, well, first of all, up until a couple of years ago, I was kind of doing it part time because I was, like I said, I was freelancing for Marvel, and and that stuff, that work was just really backbreaking work. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it wasn't until the uh, you know the whole Corona thing kicks in, but at the same time, and Marvel's doing what they call Phase Four, which is all these like crappy second string characters and um yeah and it just and and they've just they've they're really doing serious damage to the brand right now and i don't think any of that stuff you know like i haven't heard i I haven't heard from anybody at marvel in like uh two and a half years now because i don't think there's any work i mean i don't think you know i don't think kids want like an eternals bed set you know i mean those toys (sighs) none of them sold um you know, Shang-Chi, uh, Black Widow. I mean, these are all, it's the funny thing about it too, is that these are all the characters that like, when the whole first flush of the Marvel universe, you know, like I said, with Fantastic Four and, and X-Men and Spider-Man and all those kinds of things, when that started to kind of wind down in the early seventies, then they started doing all these characters that they're doing with the phase four, such as you know, <laughs> Eternals and Shang-Chi and Black Widow and mm-hmm. and all this other kind of stuff that- Black um, Adam. Black Panther. Well, Black Adam. That's, Is that that's DC? A, that's, yeah, that's a different character. I get, I get mixed up. Like Black Panther. Um, or maybe I'm thinking there is an Adam, right, in uh, Marvel. It's it's uh, connected the to like Guardian. The guy. Yeah, he's kind of like the, like the Ant-Man. But, oh, you know, okay. but the funny thing is, is that, I mean, I really love those. I mean, I love the Eternals. I love Black Panther. I love Shang-Chi. I love Doctor Strange. I mean, I loved all these. Those are like my favorite characters at the time. I mean, I wasn't reading like Spider-Man at that point in time because that to me was just old hat. Yeah. Um, Captain Marvel before they um, uh, gave gave him gender reassignment surgery. Of course, uh, you have yeah. to. You uh, know? Yeah, it's just like yeah. Ariel has to be made over, right? <laughs> well, you know, not only they did it twice, though. I mean, because not only did they give like the nominal Captain Marvel character a, a sex change, they did the same thing with um, you know Marvel. You know his because he it's a long story but he's like an alien and so on and they they had that character being played by you know that that sex change character played by annette benning oh but um okay. but i'll tell you something working so the real money maker the real um gravy for those movies was the uh merchandising really right? the licensing yeah um toys Mm -hmm. t-shirts lunch boxes right because Mm -hmm. all right so you put out you put out an avengers movie and it's going to make i don't know like a billion dollars or something right right? but those you know all the merchandising is just you know the merch is just going to sell way past the date that that movie is out of the theaters you know sometimes for years i mean look look what happened with star wars right Right. And Star Wars had been out of the theaters for years and it was still selling. I mean, oh, yeah. from, from what, like, you know, Return of the Jedi to uh, Phantom Menace. I mean, that was what, like 16 years. 
Yeah, within that 16 years, I was a little boy back in the 80s and had like brand new from the store Star Wars stuff when there were no Star Wars movies going on in the early 90s, late 80s. Well, you know? You know, well that's how, see, that's how George Lucas got so rich. So what happened is that, <laughs> no, this is an interesting story. Um, so what happened is that um, in the 70s, science fiction was dead. Mm-hmm. Like you had a little burst in the, like around 74 and stuff with uh, the Planet of the Apes thing got big again because it was a TV series and they released some of those movies into the theaters and such and you know the toys and everything I mean I love that stuff that was kind of like my my jam I mean I love Star Wars and stuff that I was starting to like you know, I was like real precocious about being a feral reprobate so uh you know <laughs> it, it, I wasn't long for that stuff right yeah but um uh <laughs> so um so I mean it was dead and then like the year couple of years before star wars came up there was logan's run and that you know that mm-hmm. did okay but so i think it's more popular now than it was back then yeah but um so george lucas said to to fox he said well um you know they're making the deals and stuff and he goes well i just want the rights to the uh, toys and stuff you know yeah. i just want the rights to the merch and fox is like <laughs> okay Good luck to you. See you later. <laughs> you can have all you want, buddy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be a billionaire. And of course, he was a billionaire. I mean, those toys were... Lucas is from the future huge. or something. Yeah, that was Him huge. and Matt Groening are travelers from another world or something. Matt Groening, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I met him. Uh, I met Matt Groening at a, um, San Diego Comic-Con. He was actually a really nice guy. Um, but, you know, the Simpsons... Yeah. It's so far yeah. i mean the simpsons is so far past the date of being a rotted corpse yeah, and, I, know. And it's funny I feel sorry for the people who work on that show that they, you know it's like a golden parachute because i'm sure they throw them a lot of money to keep this stupid thing going even though it's supposed to be the last year actually one mm. of my old roommates one of my old roommates from like uh when i first came down to jersey and I was going to comic book school and stuff became a director on the uh on the simpsons wow and he, for all I know, he he might still be, but um, you know, I mean, I haven't watched The Simpsons since Bill Clinton was in office. Yeah, I you would know, say that's so. Nice that's probably watching. about it. I mean, I you would know? say the same to, to South Park. It it wasn't long for me before I just got tired of their their take on everything. You know. Well, but, the shows um, are so cheap to produce. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. <clears throat> And, the um, Simpsons thing is just a side note real quick. Like, what are you, what is your thoughts on like the synchro mysticism of all the shit that's like quote unquote predicted in, in the Simpsons? Cause personally, I, you know, I'm on a show every week with a few of my friends called sync tank. And we, we talk about stuff like synchro mysticism and, you know, synchronicities themselves all the time and how, you know, attributing all these things to like humans doing, yeah, now put that color in there. Maybe some of it could be, purposeful but some of it almost seems like cosmic order type shit i mean it's, we're getting a little yeah, far I mean, ahead of ourselves but well the thing is it's all the above right it's all the above because a lot of it you know one thing that i think is undervalued with a lot of people who do sync work is like the whole idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy you know you, mm. you you put these ideas out there and they kind of soak in you know, to the public mind, you know, they soak into the collective unconscious. So they're going to have, uh, you know, a really strong influence, you know, I mean, the yeah. stuff that I'm, I'm mostly interested when it comes to sync work is the stuff that like, nobody had any exposure to, you yeah. know, it was something, things that are just totally obscure. Um, the Simpsons is not 
obscure. No. You know what I mean? No. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I think, you know, there are any number of things going on, right? There are any number of things going on. I, I think that it's part of it is, like I said, think, you know, just pure synchronicity. Part of it is predictive programming, right? Okay. And part of it is, um, like I said, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And, you know, part of it just might be of... like, you know, just totally random. I mean, it's like, how many episodes of that damn show are there? Yeah, you know I've heard I mean? that that angle of it. Yeah, it's like they, they're going to cover all of reality at some point. <laughs> that idea. Yeah, I mean, it's like they have a lot of, lot of opportunities to get things right and to get things wrong, you know. So, Fair. I mean, for every, you know, dead on prediction that they make, I'm sure there are like a hundred that they just don't go anywhere. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's a, it's a huge show. Yeah. It's been on forever. They've, you know, they've done every storyline that you can possibly imagine. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just, that's cool. That's it's just cool. the world. It's just the world. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. I mean, it, it's just, it's just the world. It's just like, I think this is part it, of the process really of getting over the fact that, you know, the, the reality is this way, you know, even for someone like me, who's kind of, you know, soft accepted it for decades, it's still this like, really, it's like everything is kind of a reflect of a reflection back at us. It's almost like the universe just showing us shit that happens. Like, have you ever seen the connection from like back to the future to nine 11, you know, course, it's not yeah. like Robert Zemeckis is yeah. necessarily, doing all those things on purpose it's almost like reality is just reflecting it back at us whatever is going on on some level well Perhaps. see there's another thing too though there's another thing that you have to remember sure. um sitting in a room with a blank piece of paper or a blank screen and just your imagination is exactly how they did remote viewing for 25 30 years right that's true that's that's exactly what they did with those guys they just put them in a room with a piece of paper and a pencil you know and that's right. what artists do and you know that's what writers do i mean it's like true you're going to be just pulling stuff in you know you're just going to be pulling stuff in so like i said it, it's it's all of the above it's bull, it's, yeah. it's, it's a little of everything okay. um you like know the that. thing that the thing that i always say though with like the stuff that um you know i don't like i don't see the uh the powers that be being tremendously imaginative people not you know, I, 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 yeah, not creative. I think that um, one thing that I noticed when they really want to put something out there, they just hit you over the head with it. Bang, 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 bang. I mean, look at look at the COVID thing. You know, right. The trans thing. I mean, look, look at everything that they do. You know, uh, a couple of years ago with the Black Lives Matter thing, when they want to get the message across, they just punch you in the face. That's a really constantly. good point. You know, I mean, they, they're not. You know, the more subtle or random it is, the more likely it is to be just something else than, mm -hmm. you know, predictive programming or whatever. I mean, or spellcraft. I mean, that's, you know, I'm kind of like I've transcended the whole idea of, of um, you know, you talked about revelation of the method and you talked about, uh, you know, um, you know, predictive programming stuff. It's like mm -hmm. I had a real hard time with that stuff for years. And, yeah. and it just didn't make any sense to me until I learned about ritual magic. And then right. I, and then it, like a light went on over my head. It's like, oh, shit, this is spellcraft. Mm -hmm. That's what this really is. It's it's sorcery and it's sorcerous entrainment is what's mm -hmm. really going on. So like, 
you know, I mean, there are any kind of number of things that you can put into it. But the thing that I, you know, I was always like, I don't know, just like the kind of like vigilant citizen kind of mindset. I always just had real, it just didn't make any sense to me. Like the, the explanations for why this stuff is showing up and just didn't make any sense. That's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when it, when it all fell together is when I started learning about ritual magic mm. and, and sorcery, because that's really what it is. It's sorcery. It's sorceress entrainment. Right. We have to remember um, they're working on the subconscious, not the conscious. So you have to kind of stop looking at things logically when you're kind of understanding this stuff to begin with, in a way. It's well, they work, but it's it's almost like a liminal state between the conscious and the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's really how this stuff operates. It operates in that uh twilight zone, let's just say. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um you know, that really kind of informs my work, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and I guess I'll have uh, to look into it further than yeah, I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, Would you say revelation of method is part of that ritualistic math method? Because it, it kind of feels like uh, Shelby Downard framed it that way. Like these are, were like deep, dark occultists doing these workings through revelation of method. What would you say to that? I think that's, well, like I said, that's interpretive. That's an okay. interpretation. I've never read, agree. you know, outside of Downer to Hoffman, I've never read anybody actually use that term. I know. You know, predating them. <laughs> yeah, but I've tried. I've scoured everything looking for it. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just it, them. It, it is interpretive. Um, you know, it might make a lot of sense, right? Mm -hmm. It might make a lot of sense in the long run. But um, One of the one of the problems that I had, something that I was trying to tell people, particularly in the early days of the um, the blog, is like don't assume that a lot of this symbolism is meant for your benefit. I mean, these are people; these are occultists signaling each other, you know, mm -hmm. using the mass media, architecture, events, sports, games, all these kind of things to signal each other. They don't mm -hmm. give a shit whether you get the message or not. You know, they're not talking to you. They're not talking to us. They're talking to each other. And I, I think that's something, you know, with the, with the revelation of the method stuff, that's where, it, you know, a lot of times it would just fall apart from me because I'm just like, well, listen, I know this symbolism pretty well. I've seen the symbolism in action and I've been mm -hmm. documenting this for a long time. And I just don't see that. So, um, but like, you know, down is an interesting case because, in some ways, he's kind of like the founding father of synchromysticism. You know, if you take Jung out of the equation, you know, I, I would argue sure. that Jung is. But, um, you know, he's working before the Internet, you know, yeah. so he's kind of doing like the hard work of going to libraries and looking through microfiche and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that was, a. I mean, I used to do work like I used to do synchromistic work before it was called that. Like, that's how I was doing shit in the 90s. Right. Mm -hmm. because the internet was pretty limited until the World Wide web really takes off and you know then you start to like google and stuff when yeah google we had news good. pages no one remembers like news pages that you'd have to news through. news groups news yeah knew the news groups yeah yeah that was so, like, right I mean, when i caught on to the internet that was kind of phasing out well it's like i remember those days when you you know spending time in the library and like looking through indexes and 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 uh card catalogs and all this kind of stuff, doing the hard work. So I understand, Donard. It's like you get very like uh you know very possessive because every 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 morsel that you get you fought really hard for and you're not gonna right. let go of it. 
But, you know, the thing that I, I always bothered me about Donard is just like, well, it's kind of close to or it's similar, you know, it's like all this kind of like horseshoes and hand grenades kind of shit where it's just like it, it is, but it isn't quite, yeah. and, you know, and all this kind of stuff where it's just like it's, it's very um, approximate. Mm -hmm. And I find that really frustrating because that, that to me is cheating. And that like when, when normies hear that stuff, they just go, shut the fuck up. It's I know. And that's what bothers me the most. And that's I mean, it's it's a mountain to climb for a lot of us that are doing this work together. But it's like we got to refine our level of discernment in this community. I think I get deep into the UFO topic a lot. I know you cover it here and there. I know we're not planning on talking about that tonight. It's an entirely different conversation but it's like yeah i i look at ufo twitter and it's just a scourge upon the observation and study of conscious experiences and it's the saddest yeah. state you know no, ufos ufos are bad news I, i'm kind of like i'm i'm no i'm very much like keel now um okay ultra terrestrial perspective more well, so i've kind of always been like in that regard right mm -hmm. but what happened is that starting in 2015 you know, my family and I had like one 2015, one 2016, and one early 2017 had really um, startling uh, observations, close encounters, I don't know, the close encounters of the first kind, second kind, I don't know what you call it. Mm -hmm. But um, my son and his friends had uh, videotaped I mean, this is like an all, this is 2000. He had like this old, I mean, I've still got the video. I mean, you can see what it is, but it's, it's not a great, you know, it's low res old iPhone shit. Right. That's the rule. But the, yeah. Well, <laughs> there was, well, the other thing too, is that a lot of times these are not like actual physical, physical objects, but mm -hmm. there are all these UFOs sort of hovering over this golf course that he worked at. He works at this, he worked at this golf course, um, very exclusive kind of place. And there were all these UFOs uh, and, you know, he went out and bought like a really expensive camera, but then like he kind of thought about it and he's like, I don't want anything to do with that shit. Cause like some other, you know, some other bad things were going on. And like oh, these UFO encounters, whatever you want to call them, were sort of going hand in hand with like a lot of bad things that were going on, you know, in our mm -hmm. lives. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the, the last one was in, February 2017 and um, it was a Chevron shaped UFO and it was like just sitting over our neighborhood for like I don't know we got bored of watching it we were like watching oh. it for 20 minutes and it was it was doing like these weird kind of like lateral movements you know up straight up straight down straight back straight forward like just these weird and it was Chevron shape and, and uh, a week or so after we saw it there there were some videos that showing up on YouTube, like in Texas and Colorado of these same things. So, um, but, you know, just sitting there watching, I think for 20 minutes, I was just thinking, I'm not getting a good feeling from this. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. I don't know what's behind it. It's clearly some sort of intelligence. It's clearly a structured craft that does not look for the life of it to be aerodynamic in any way, shape or form. Um, why is it there? It's just, I just didn't like it. You know, I just, it just, and, <laughs> and interesting, yeah. And I, you know, cause I had been like really almost like maniacal with the UFO stuff for a while. And then 
after that, I'm kind of like, nah, I don't think so. And then what <laughs> just killed it forever for me was that whole Tom DeLonge bullshit that took place like just a couple days after the uh, the thing in Las Vegas. You know? oh, so, um, I, you know, I credit uh, Tom DeLonge for really killing uh, the UFO conspiracy field, which is probably the, the idea. Probably, you know? yeah. Because <laughs> like UFO conspiracy do it. Yeah, because UFO conspiracy stuff was pretty, pretty hot at the time, and and you know, I mean, it's still UFO, like I guess you know, like the Black Vault and Nick Pope, yeah. you know, just the the usual suspects and so on. But um, it's not what it was at all. No, you know, it's, been it's definitely been even more coupled, than it ever was. Well, yeah, it's been co-opted by you know all these CIA goons. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I just I. I just tell people, just there's nothing there for you. That's what there's I say. There's nothing I, to be gained. You know, there's nothing. There's nothing there to learn. There's nothing there to to, to be gained. There's nothing there that's going to help your life in any way. Um, mm -hmm. it's just, and they it's, would argue tooth and nail that they're the the technology that will be brought forth is going to transform our lives, and it's only coinciding with the Great Reset as a coincidence. Uh, you know, all this AI and alien and. It all fits the yeah. bill to me. I mean, it's just yeah. a clear psyop, but let's, let's talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and yours, Boston hardcore, man. That's, it was so cool to find out that you were from my neck of the woods and grew up in the immersed in this hardcore community. It's definitely nothing. Now it doesn't really exist too much in the Massachusetts area that I've been to metal has kind of taken over and I favor that usually these days anyway, but the heyday, the chaos of most of what I miss cause I was too young, but I mean, Jerry's kids did like a reunion tour in like the early to mid nineties. I was too young for that, but I was enthralled in all that older Boston music and just everything about it. And uh, yeah, I just would love to hear your perspective on your times in it. And of course you kind of have this whole secret history of Boston hardcore. And I would love to hear about that. Well, it's funny you said Jerry's kids. Cause I was the original singer and I actually named the group Jerry's kids. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, are, you, are you credited in their history and all that? Is there any documentaries about Jerry's uh, kids? Cause well, there I'm, should I'm, be. I'm thanked. I'm well. There's the all ages. Oh, okay. Boston hardcore, and uh, that's there's right. Like a, I'm in a, I'm in a ton of that. I'm just sort of. I'm gonna have to go back and watch you know. this. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Um. But um. So Boston hardcore. Uh. How much? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go like another half or or forty, whatever you know, we can gotta, squeeze. I, 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 yeah, I've got a lot to say. Um. <laughs> Let's so, take it to uh, one step at a time and we'll see where we end up, you know? So Boston hardcore is a really interesting thing. And I, you know, it was a Gen X thing. It really mm -hmm. was, um, you know, you had sort of, you know, what they call generation Jones now, which is sort of like that weird group in between boomers and Gen X sort of like early sixties. Um, but uh, Boston hardcore had a, a very interesting sort of, impetus i think you know like origin point because i don't think it really starts in boston i think it starts in braintree and quincy you know okay. where i was from uh because i was right on the um i was on the board like i was literally on the border like of quincy and weymouth and braintree what's called okay. it was this area called weymouth landing and um east braintree 
where I grew up was kind of like the dumpy industrial area because there was um, at the end of other end of Quincy Avenue, right up there was what was called the um, General Dynamics Shipyard, and it was this big ass shipyard where they built like LNG tankers and stuff. So this is like this is an in Braintree, at least a part of Braintree that I was in was very industrial. And there was also these, um, there was a big BP, I think it was, had a big um, like gasoline depot up on, you know, up in the hill there, uh, maybe about a mile from my house. And, um, you know, what they've discovered, the thing was just leaking benzene into the groundwater for years. And, and they found like these insanely high, this is just a few years ago, they found these insanely high levels of benzene. Mm -hmm. And, um, but also Braintree, you know, and this is something I didn't learn till later is that Braintree is really kind of like a gangster town mm. or it was a gangster. I mean, I don't know if it is now, but for when I was growing up and up until not too long ago, it was, you know, I, I got like a newspaper.com subscription. I was going back and looking at all these news stories and there was always like, you know, drug ring this, prostitution ring here, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, Braintree was, you know, kind of a hub for it, you know, partly because of its location. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I was a kid, 1982, uh, one of my, one of my friends uh, lived next door to a cop and, you know, knew this cop and the cop told him and said that there was um, a prostitution ring going out of the Braintree tea station. And it was basically these girls picking up men coming off the train and stuff, taking them across the street to the, uh, there was this shithole called Sweet Chalet that later became a Motel 6 and there was shootings and, you know, a lot of prostitution and brain food, right? Um, and, you know, and I found out like who the girls were and these were like, you know, freshmen in Jesus. high school. These are like very, very young girls. And I was just like, you, you know, it was weird. And it, it was so funny, too, because, you know, you talk about hardcore. I remember going to see the Meat Men at the Gallery East. And, like, uh, I don't know if it was in between sets or something, but I was talking to Tesco V, right? You remember Tesco V, the Meat I've Men, I've heard right? the name, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, so they were sort of like, um, you know, they're kind of like the mentors, kind of like, you know, like this really parody kind of, you know, really gross chauvinistic kind of group. Okay. But I was talking, this is, I was talking to Tesco V and I'm like, Oh man, you got to come down to Braintree, man. You can get some, you know, you can have sex with like high school girls at the, you know, train station and stuff. Just look at me like, who the fuck is this kid? You know, but you know, so the gallery East was really interesting because that was like a cell station. Right. And mm -hmm. um, I know the guy, I, you know, I still know the guy who, who opened that up. It was, it was a karate studio during the day. This guy named Dwayne Lucia. And but it was like karate state uh, studio, but he also had like art exhibits there. And then they'd have hardcore shows on the weekend. And I think the first hardcore show, I, no, the second hardcore show I went to was there. And it was like um, SSD control and the freeze. And like the SSD played for like 20 minutes, maybe even less. Yeah. And the, the cops, <laughs> the cops came and shut it all down. And uh, yeah. So but anyway, so the point is that like, um, East Braintree, East Junior High School. So like Kevin Mahoney from Siege, like, you know, I was in class with him. I knew him. Chris, Chris Doherty, Gang yeah. Green, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, when uh, there was, used to be three junior high schools, um, they shut down one of them. And like, so, you know, Mike Dean, Bill Manley from Gang Green ended up going there. So like all of Gang Green went to East Junior High School. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave Aronson, who I was friends with, like 
late day, passed away a little while ago. Um, you know, he went there and, uh, you know, the thing is, is that like East Braintree, and like I said, it was all the, you know, this gasoline, this was when there was lead in the gas mm-hmm. and the violence was just ridiculous. I mean, kids were just fighting all the time. And, you know, it turns out they, they discovered later on that lead, like atmospheric lead, affects the, the brains, the developing brains of adolescent boys and causes them to be violent. And boy, did I see that every day. Um, you know, Damn. it's like, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there will be I've fi- heard that so, before in context with like the decades where the highest profile serial killers were, were operational. And how, well, I mean, that's all those kids that were growing up with lead as everyday, you know, byproduct of their lives. So it might be. Yeah, so like I said, it's even worse because there was that big BP right, right uh, gasoline depot, right? That's, and and then, then there's all the other contaminants that are leaching into the soil. And of course, this is like right up the hill from like uh, Watson Park where we all played Little League. And then there's a beach there where I used to go with my mom. Uh, mm-hmm. It was called Swift's Beach. And they shut it down because Boston Harbor got so polluted from all the sewage and stuff. Right. So, um, so East Braintree is really kind of like, I don't want to say that it, it's kind of like this, the spiritual godfather. Cause like I said, a lot of people in these groups went to East junior high school and what I wrote about in the endless American midnight, um, I've got a new edition of that. Oh, by the way, oh, um, awesome. uh, there's a teacher at East who was a major pedophile and had a harem of boys, everybody, everybody knew about it. Whoa. Every freaking kid in school knew that, you know, knew who this guy was, knew what was going on, knew who his boys were. Um, kids, kids and parents would complain about it to uh, school board principals. Nothing was done about this guy until 1980. So until, you know, this cohort of like a lot of these kids who ended up in these hardcore bands Kevin Mahoney, Chris Doherty, uh, Mike Dean, Bill Manley, Dave Aronson, you know, like sort of these like key people in Jerry's Kids and Gang Green and, and also mm-hmm. Siege, right? I mean, uh, Siege, some of the guys in Siege were from Weymouth and Weymouth is another story. Weymouth was just a fucking madhouse. But, um, <laughs> oh, it was. It was just like, it was like South Boston writ large. Oh, but, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so you just grow up in this environment where like, you know, you have like open pedophile just like pimping boys, uh, you know, clearly pimping boys out. Cause when they, they finally arrested this guy, they found him off the coast of Florida on a 52 foot yacht. Holy shit. Yeah. And, and like, you tell me how like um, a junior high school teacher in the seventies had the bucks to buy that kind of fucking boat. Right. You know what I mean? But this is like, so this is brain dream. Like there was all the, you know, all the stuff with the Catholic priests, like some of the worst priests like right. uh, Gagan and, and Shanley um, had posts at Braintree at one point or another. There was this weird kind of youth group going on that had some like dodgy stuff going on. And actually the, Arch, the Archdiocese of Boston is located in Braintree now because the guy who was really running um, uh, who's really running the diocese was this guy named Flatley. And Flatley was this uh, kind of like almost like a Donald Trump guy, but just had a much lower profile, but he was based in Braintree. He owned all this um, real estate and so on. And he was basically keeping 
the arch when all those lawsuits started happening it was like his money that was keeping the diocese afloat and when they finally had to sell the building he just moved him into one of his properties in Braintree but there was also this case that I also write about in Endless American Midnight where this girl uh named Diane Devana was um tortured and raped and murdered by her family and this was like 78 1978 when the story came to light and like everybody was just traumatized by it like when the news came out and it was just it was so horrific it was like medieval it, it was just what they did to this girl was just unimaginable and you know there's this weird kind of connection with the the whole priest scandal with that situation but you know it's too much to go into but the point is is that um <clears throat> there was just you know the sense that there was just so much violence like there would, there would be fights every day like basically right outside the front door of the school like, down this hill there was like the big path and the little path and there'd be fights every single friggin day mm-hmm. and like something would be like there'd be like two or three fights going on it's like who do you want to watch fight you know i'll, right. I'll watch this fight and, <laughs> and like you know like walking um it east Junior high school boarded this uh this kind of section eight apartment building uh, apartment complex called Manadequid village um there was just all sorts of chaos and debauchery going on over there and like you know, walking to school every day, unless I wanted to walk like way out of my way, I had to go through um, this path. And it was basically just like an open air, open air drug bazaar every day. Well, like kids from the high school would come down and sell drugs to junior high school kids, sixth mm-hmm. graders. I mean, you know, it's like I knew what microdot was when I was in sixth grade. It's just, <laughs> it's just friggin' ridiculous. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. So anyway, um... <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that a lot of this was what was really feeding into the uh, the spirit of Braintree Hardcore and Boston Hardcore, because really what it what you really starts with, in, in my estimation. So um, Jerry's Kids was me, Dave Aronson, Brian Jones and Brian Beskerin and Brian Beskerin, you know, everybody at me uh, was in. The, the, the lineup that records on this is Boston, not LA. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Bob Sensi and Rick Jones were in a band called the uh, insects, I N S E X. And uh, they had this uh, drummer. The drummer was this kid named Walter and he went away to college. So like, they just kind of like merged the two groups and kicked me out. And I didn't care. Cause you know, there was a lot of really, really fucked up shit going on at home that I yeah. can't really go into, but um you know, I, I just, you know, I didn't really, I couldn't really deal with it. But, uh, mm-hmm. so, but it was just that, that real, like, like super fucking, you know, 300 beats per minute or whatever. That was, um, that was gangrene. That mm. was, uh, because Jerry's kids, you know, like, uh, Brian Betzger, um, the drummer, you know, they used his like back porch for the rehearsal studio and, he had like, you know, really nice parents, great family, great house and great equipment and everything. And so like what Gangrene did, because Gangrene grew out of this group that was just like this garage band um, 
with like a keyboardist and stuff and the keyboardist mm. in the single left and it was just mike bill and chris and then and like to distinguish themselves from all the other hardcore that was like they were going to play three times faster than black flag <laughs> and i you know so sorry i remember like i remember like really clearly so springer from ssd came out right and he wanted to see what was going on. like what's all the shit going on in braintree so he got, goes to see like jerry's kids and jerry's kids are like doing kind of like black flag like that mm -hmm. was the whole deal. I mean, I really love that early Jerry's Kid stuff, but they were doing like Black Flag pretty much straight up. And then he goes to see um, Gangrene and they're, they're rehearsing in like Mike Dean's attic. And it was like, sort of, you know, the fastest of the fast, faster than anybody had heard at that point in time. I mean, right. It was just ridiculously fast. And and Spring was just, he just thought it was the greatest thing he ever heard. He was just like flipping out. He's like laughing. He's like bent over. He couldn't believe it. And, um, but that version, so that version of Gangrene ends up playing on this is Boston at LA, but they fall apart pretty quickly because, um, like Mike and Bill just weren't into it. They were like they were you know pretty much kind of you know a little more straight up kind of guys. Mm -hmm. And then Chris Doherty goes to play for Gangrene because Brian Jones, I still remember the show. Um, Brian Jones, who's a singer, Jerry's Kids, breaks his leg on stage at the Gallery East. Was it? it I think it was the Gallery East. Yeah. And, a typical uh, and, situation for a hardcore band back then. Yeah, yeah. And then his mother's just like, forget it. You know, she, you know, you're not, you're not you're doing, not that doing anymore. it anymore. You're not doing it anymore. I broke, I broke my nose about five minutes before I went on stage one time, and then I ended up playing the show with just blood gushing, which was just like, man, this is like an accidental aesthetic. It's awesome. It's just getting everybody revved up. Nobody wants the, to the Andrew WK aesthetic, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. So, um. So that's really kind of the impetus. And like I said, that's like that rage, like Chris Doherty lived, um, he, he lived behind the Quintry Mall. He, he was like a couple blocks over from Quincy Avenue and he lived not too far from the shipyard. So, and this is like grim. This is like, you know, stuff you hear on like an old, like, I don't know, Clash song or something, you know, like grim industrial, almost like, or like a Bruce Springsteen record or something. It was fucking grim, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like people in East, East Braintree, there was a lot of like welfare families and there's a lot of tons of alcoholism, but also tons of like child predators running around. It was yeah. just fucked up. It was fucked up. So that rage, I think, really feeds into Boston hardcore. And that makes Boston hard, that differentiates Boston hardcore from. DC and New York. Yeah. I mean, like they had their own situation. Like DC, like those are all like middle class kids. A lot of their families work for the government or for universities and stuff. Yeah, they were pissed at the government. They're right in their backyard and everything. Yeah, but the thing is, is that a lot of them just get sucked up into the system. Like, you know, the great example being um, what's the guy's Lyle Preslar from Minor Thread ends up going to work, mm. you know, as an AR guy for the or was it a, a Mago or something? You know, one of those kind of uh quasi indies in the 90s that gets bought up or something always 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 sort of like an ersatz uh, wing of a major label so yeah. i mean like and then new york was like that was a whole different scene like i'm it's funny because i'm more partial to the new york hardcore than i am to the boston hardcore like blood, um, for blood and shit like that no i'm talking like earlier like earlier uh, <laughs> like chrome eggs and uh, oh okay you know what i mean like that hell scene. yeah <laughs> like uh chrome eggs and um Murphy's Law and uh, Gorilla Biscuits early. Uh, it's funny because I saw, um, well, it was only one of them. So I saw The Young and the Useless, which is one of the groups that sort of became the Beastie Boys. And I think it was 
I think it was Adam Yock was like the bass player. Okay. And um, they opened up a public image limited, like this crazy, crazy ass show. Like one of like my favorite shows because it was just so chaotic. Public image limited plays um, 1982 at the, at the channel and the channel was like, that was the big place to go. And, um, but like people were like, it got so crazy. Like somebody like broke their fucking neck stage dive and went right into a column and stuff. And and it was just, it was just crazy. Like it was just, you know, like Boston became like really violent, like Mm -hmm. the scene, like, you know, the Boston beat down and stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it tried to come back again. Like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. I I would say you mentioned gorilla biscuits. I, I, Gorilla Biscuits seemed to be a real heavy influence, like in the quote unquote scene about 10, 12, maybe, maybe even 15 years ago or so in like the Worcester County area, that influence came back with a vicious presence. It was interesting. That is interesting. That's, totally that's unlikely. very, yeah, it's very unlikely, but, um, so like the, uh, the scene, the New York scene was like a lot of homeless kids. And that's, that's why like, you know, like the Chromex guys got into Krishna because that was where they could get a meal. Cause this is like Lower East Side, you know what I mean? Like all the squats, it was just a totally different scene. But I, you know, I gotta tell you something about the Boston scene. Um, it's, it's really funny because it's like, I grew up poor and in a very chaotic home environment. Right. Um, I started you know, drinking and getting high and everything like 11, 12 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my, my wife says, you know, my, my life story is like the kind of life story you hear all the time on uh, soft white underbelly. You ever watch that channel? <laughs> no, I what, no, it's like all these like people who end up on the street and everything. Oh, but, okay, um, okay. Yeah. 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 So no, but the thing is, is like, so m- most of the kids, you know, like the Braintree kids, you know, like they had nice houses, nice families, intact families, you know, um, uh, you know, they had parents who could get them nice equipment and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was like a, a punk rock, you know, like my life was a lot more punk rock, but the, the thing is, I just want to get out of it. I wanted right. to get away That's from always it. The I wanted to, yeah. It's like, you don't wallow in that kind of underbelly mm-hmm. kind of world if you grew up in it. And the other thing too, is that I, my mother was a musician. So I grew up like, I grew up in nightclubs and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're so poor because she was a musician, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's for real. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, I grew up in nightclubs, like my, some of my earliest memories is this nightclub that was owned by the Irish mob. It wasn't the winter Hill gang. It wasn't whitey, but it was like one of these other mobs. Mm-hmm. And it was this place called Coral Gables in Weymouth on three a, and like, I got to grow up, you know, I was like playing with my little match matchbox cars or hot wheels, whatever, like four or five years old. And, you know, she'd be rehearsing, yeah. But it was like an old school kind of Vegas style nightclub, right? And they were the entertainment. They were the dinner show. So it's like I've been, you know, spending all my time in nightclubs since I could remember. Mm. So like even like even by the time of hardcore, I was getting kind of fucking bored of it. You know what right. I mean? It's like I'm just I'm, I'm getting bored of going to shows. I'm like I'm getting bored of that environment, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just like it's not as thrilling as you think it is when you grow up in it. You know, it's like, yeah. All these other kids were like, you know, like I said, had, you know, good families that, you know, had money and they'd go on vacation and, you know, they had, you know, nice sneakers and they weren't wearing hand-me-down clothes and all the shit that I had to deal with. Right. And, right. and just all the 
shit that was going on at home, like all the chaos and, mm. you know, all the other shit. So I just wanted to get away from it. You know, I just like I left I left Braintree as soon as I could. You know, like I said, when I graduated high school and I, I came down to art school, I was just like, I'm I'm never going back. You know, mm. I just I just don't want to be there anymore. I mean, believe me, I had a fucking blast in high school. My my high school was like my high school experience was like, you know, it was like Repo Man meets like uh, The Breakfast Club or something. It was just crazy. <laughs> wow. You know. Yeah, it was that just, movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was <laughs> like I mean, I had a great time, and it's like, but, but like I said, I mean, it's like I was like a total. I mean, I, I started skipping every Friday, and then I started skipping every Thursday and Friday. But by the time they caught me, I was just basically on school on Monday and Tuesday, and sometimes not even then. Like I was just a total fruin, getting high, getting drunk. I mean, I was just like, I mean, I I was a classic latchkey kid, very feral and everything, and then like. <laughs> You know, it's like because of this lifestyle my mother was involved in, I'm kind of getting exposed to like the seedy underbelly of life at a very young age. You know what I mean? Mm. And I just I just wanted to get out of it. You know, it's like I did I, that stuff had no appeal to me. I think when you grow up in a very sedate and stable environment, you want like that excitement. You want that like contrast, right? Yeah, that contrast. It's like when you grow up in like poverty and in, you know, in a fucked up environment at home and like being exposed to a lot of stuff that kids really shouldn't be exposed to. It's not as fun as, you know, it wasn't fun for me. So, but, um, so here's the interesting thing though. Like what, you know what, when you talk about the broader picture here, it's like, to me, like I said, hardcore is a very Gen X thing. And it was like Gen X kids were just tired of being shut out and tired of hearing about how everything was better in the sixties and tired of like, you know, the boomers are sort of loading over them and telling them that everything they right. did sucked and was stupid and everything. Um, but it was also, I had this, so I had this, wrote up this theory and I talked about it on the, on my rock and roll blog, but like in the era of rock and roll, there was like the turnover with every four years, starting in like 55 up till grunge, like every four years, there'd be like a turnover. So like 79, um, you know, before the hardcore thing really kicks in, that's when the new age, the new age stuff starts. You have the cars and Blondie and Devo and all that kind of shit. And then 83, mm -hmm. it's like the British, but you know, Eurythmics and, you know, so th there would always be like these every four years of this big, big turnover. So what was going on with hardcore? It was like the, it was, like, they're all little brothers. Like everybody was like the youngest in the family. So you had mm -hmm. the big baby boom generation. And like so many of the, you know, if you go through all these like hardcore bands, you're going to find out that so many of them are the youngest, the youngest kid in the family. And, you know, at a time like in the seventies, like I said, when everything's just going to complete chaos and parents are just letting their kids fend for themselves while they go off to key parties or whatever. Right. And right. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Cause my wife and I were just talking about how like we, and there's a part of me that does appreciate what the meme is saying. You know, the, the picture of the bikes out on the street corner with the, with the light post. and you know, back in the good old days, it's like my wife brought up a good point. She's like, yeah, back when parents didn't give a fuck about your, about their kids and they were just everywhere and doing whatever they wanted. Like, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. It was, you know, but like I said before, it's like, I was exposed to, so much shit going growing up like very very young yeah that like like i said the cd underbelly just did not appeal to me i mean like you know like i said i was growing up near the weymouth landing it's just like me and my friends would like uh have these shortcuts where we would go down to like you know the little convenience store down there 
and we'd be going through this alley and they'd be like drunks passed out and they're puking shit and you'd have to like kind of Man. step over them and it's like you know it's just like and That's then it was intense. just like but it wasn't it was just like you, you, your kids just deal with shit you know what yeah, i mean absolutely like, yeah that's that just, thing they, that's what we pass on tuesdays <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and it's just you know it's just the world you grow up in but like the other mm-hmm. shit were like you know there were some hairy experiences were like uh, do you ever see the movie um, Mystic River with uh, oh, yeah. Sean Penn? That's a Massachusetts movie, isn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I'll tell you. When I hear non-authentic Boston accents, oh. it really, it really oh, fucks it me. Turns up. my stomach. Every comic yeah. has to talk about Dunkin' Donuts. It's yeah, yeah. sounds it, Minnesotan. It, it, it's like get yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the movie The Departed. Parts Hell of which yeah. are filmed at Braintree, right? But it's just like um, Mark Wahlberg, who actually uh, moved to a block away from my house when <laughs> what happened is that Donnie Wahlberg got big with new kids on the block. Yeah. And they were living in Dorchester and Dorchester was really shit in the bed. And, um, they moved, they moved a block away from my house. Uh, they were living up on Pilgrim Pilgrim road, which is, you know, like I said, uh, next street over from me. And my mother, my mother said that like um, when the new kids on the block were big, they would all be all these frigging girls coming up from the landing with their lunchboxes. And they just sit outside his house, like dozens, t- 20, you know, scores, whatever, like all these, this whole little army of girls sitting outside the, um, the Wahlberg house on Pilgrim road there. But anyway, uh, my goodness, I would have loved to seen like the Wahlberg bros having an accidental run in with like a group of hardcore kids. <laughs> what uh, would but, that have been like? <laughs> well, see, that's my next point. So, okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, no, but that's a good segue because, um, like I said, so this is generational thing. This is a Gen X thing, but there's also this sort of sub generational thing with all the younger brothers. Mm. Um, you know, for a lot of these families, like big Irish, it would be like five or six kids, you know, and they're, the, they're like the afterthoughts, right? And, um, but also the, um, all the, uh, like the Southie boys would, would basically um, ride the T on Friday and Saturday nights and start fights with people. And and not even like start fights, but just like, you know, you'd be like one guy sitting there and like a bunch of South boys would come up and just start wailing on him and stuff. I mean, Boston. and what, what, what had happened, what had happened is that um, you had the, like the, so there was a first wave punk rock scene in Boston and uh sort of like the big bands from that are like a natural acts they did they saved hitler's brain mm-hmm. and uh la Peste did better off dead and well i guess mission of burma kind of is a little bit later but there was so there are a few groups and there was like the real kids and the nervous eaters and stuff all of which just became sellout bands but um so there was a punk scene and a lot of those bands just burnt out really quickly. And then there was like all that shitty, arty, new wave kind of shit, you know, like me, like Oingo Boingo kind of shit. Oh, but like okay. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just like all the, and a lot of it was like all these kids from Berkeley, Berkeley School of Music would like form all these like herky jerky, fake sub devo, you know, arty, just really pretentious bullshit music. Mm-hmm. And one of which was, um, Amy Mann. So I used to see Amy Mann every Saturday morning because we'd all go into Newberry Comics. And this is when Newberry Comics was a literal fucking hole in the wall. And it was literally like a, a closet that it like from in an, in, it was like the, uh, I don't even know what you call it, but sort of like the janitorial area 
in like one of these big old Boston townhouses. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, the thing was like, it, it had to have been like maybe uh, no wider than 10 feet wide. And then it was like maybe, I don't know, 20 feet deep. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And the thing was, but that was like, that's where I got like all those classic hardcore uh, records and I was buying all like my comic books there and stuff. That place mm -hmm. was fucking awesome. But anyway, um, like I'd see Amy Mann there. She was in this really terrible group called the Young Snakes. And there was like, doo -doo 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 -doo. like everything, like everything was like, doo -doo 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 -doo. like all like clean guitars, you know what I mean? Like, just like the no... pendulum swang away from heavy music entirely. Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it was like, just everything was really dorky and arty. It was all rich kids. It was yeah, all like yeah. rich kid bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so what happened is that a lot of this was kind of like, there was the rat and Cantones and spit and Metro, I mean, there was just like a, this little circuit of places that people used to play. But the rat was in Kenmore Square and Kenmore Square on, on Friday and Saturday nights was just a fucking endless gang fight because <laughs> Kenmore Square would be like, you know, kids from Charlestown and Southie and, uh, you know, even kids from the North End and stuff. And like basically all these like packs of, of kids, you know, all wearing like uh, those, bar remember those Barracuda jackets, you know, mm -hmm. those... Uh, with the, the plaid in, in, in set and the, uh, you know, like sort of like uh, golf jackets, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and um, they just beat the shit out of like people coming out of, of, of the rat. Oh and like, and like, that's kind of like how the scene, that new wave scene kind of ran aground because the violence, they were just like sitting ducks, you know, you come out of the rat of the scene a show and you're just getting beat up by these scumbags, <laughs> you know, from, you know what I mean? From like, yeah sort of the outer rim right and um you know they call them wolf packs right and uh so that sort of killed that scene so when hardcore comes around like people sort of you know understood the let you know they understood what was going on you know that you know you'd go into boston you know a lot of times you'd have to fend fend for yourself against these fucking people you know these, mm -hmm. these little gangs these little wolf packs so um you know, as soon as kids start wa walking around with like, you know, wearing army boots and shaved heads, you know, all those fucking salty kids, they just back off because it's, you know, it's like, oh, that, that doesn't look like an easy target. The kid looks like he can probably handle himself, you know. Right. And that's and that. But that was a big impetus because of the violence. I mean, this is like you got to remember that like Boston in the 70s, you had the whole busing thing and uh, desegregation and stuff. And there was just a tremendous amount of like like brawls open air brawls all over the city all the shit was going on so you just grew up in, a, in an atmosphere of violence you know yeah. what i mean it was yeah. it was not the boston of today it was a it was a sort of this working class city with just this upper crust sort of at the you know at the uh margins of it you know what i mean like right. and like I said, the animosity of the many yeah, like all these rich college kids, you know, going to Emerson and, and you know, the, the kids going to Berkeley. Yeah. But like, so SSD, one of their early songs, I think it was like one of their first songs was um, How Much Art. And, and uh, you know, I knew all those guys. I knew all those guys. Um, Springer was from Quincy, right? Mm -hmm. So he's he's like a wholly different animal because Al, I think, was from Revere. Fucking Revere, was, kid. Yeah, like Revere. And that was like the whole Revere beach scene. That was like, you know, uh, just all the cuisines with their Camaros and the Trans Ams and stuff. I mean, that was like just a totally different mindset. Uh, Springer was from Quincy and it was this high school that there were a lot like um, 
Paul Fox, who was a singer in Jerry's Kids for a while when, when, when Brian couldn't sing. Um, but there was this band. So there's this band called the Incinerators from Quincy. And they knew Springer. They were like kind of hanging out with Springer. And that was the first show I went to. And it was in one of the Incinerators' basements. And I swear to God, it was like the best hardcore show I went to. It was like <laughs> this big fucking basement. It had like 10-foot ceilings, you know what I mean? And like everybody there was like, the bands, so Jerry's Kids, Gangrene, and the Incinerators play. Everybody there is in the band or is friends with the band. So it was like a really, you know, tight knit kind yeah. of thing. But it was like, that was like the, that was the hardcore ideal. And that was the first hardcore show I went to. And that was like, that's what it was supposed to be like. You know what Hell I mean? Yeah. It was supposed to be like kids in basements, you know, but it, it changed uh, really quickly because. So when the boss, you know, the whole thing starts off with Gallery East and then this this other place opens up, this place called Media Workshop that's opened up this guy named Kevin. Uh, it's a really cool guy, this black guy who was uh, involved with the um, RCYB, uh, which was like this Maoist kind of communist sect. Mm -hmm. And um, so a lot of the hardcore bands ended up getting their start there. Uh, like Jerry's Kid's first gig was at Cantone's and Cantone's, this is like so surreal. Cantone's was a Chinese restaurant during the day and for dinner. And then late night would have bands come in and play. And that's, that was where Jerry's, Jerry's Kids and the Incinerators played there. That's like they, such a traditional hardcore story right there. Like well, the double it, business it, side of it and everything. Yeah, because there's uh, one Yeah, else, well, I guess we'll let you play for an hour. Keep, you know. <laughs> well, there's Madame Wong's, that the Circle Jerks. Uh, and I just want some scan, you know, let's go to Madame Wong's. I don't know if that was in LA or in San Francisco. There were a couple know. of those places out, out West that were Chinese restaurants. Anyway. That's so um, funny. <laughs> so the incinerators were like, they were scary dudes. They were like, <laughs> no, I'm serious, man. They were like, um, really, uh, like these, this weird lost breed of like just bare knuckle Boston fighters who just mm -hmm. love to fight. And they loved punk because it was violent. Right. And I'll tell you something. So I remember like one of the guys in the incinerators, I was walking to the Jerry's kids rehearsal studio at Brian Vesper's house and I was walking through the woods and there was a bunch of burnouts there and they were always giving a shit, you know, they're like punk rock faggots, fuck you and all. This kind of stuff. <laughs> and um, so they were yelling at the stuff and this guy from the incinerators just walks up to him and said, like calm as you can possibly imagine. Like, what did he say? Do you want to say that to my face? You know what I mean? And it was, he was so calm and he was just like these, it was like, five or six of these burnouts sitting around this little kind of like a little fire campfire and and they just yeah. shut up immediately because they just knew <laughs> that this guy was going to you know bust all their heads in but anyway so that was the insanities they were like scary dudes and they they dropped out like they weren't really into the hardcore thing they were more into tradition, traditional punk but a lot mm. of the people who started showing up are like you know like all these jocks from uh, Severian and Don Bosco and um, you know a lot of these kind of preppy catholic schools all boys yep. schools yep and then um and they were all they're all just like hockey jocks they were just hockey jocks who were there for fucking the fights and stuff and then um there was a a lot of skaters that were sh that were into the scene like the mm -hmm. big crossover with oh, the skaters yeah, big time and a lot of the skaters were from marblehead and if you know Mar marblehead's like that's like martha's vineyard that's like big money old money yeah old you know like right next Phelps. to salem so one of the guys was Jake Phelps. I don't know if you've heard that name, but he went. I've up, heard that name, yeah. Yeah, he ended up being the um, editor for Thrasher magazine. Maybe that's where yeah. I I used to read Thrasher all the time, so that might be where where it was. Yeah, so he was he was one of the original Marvel heads, 
and like he came from money i mean he was a phelps i mean that's like old old line money yeah uh, of course he was like a fucking gorilla <laughs> he was you know it's like you never wanted to be near that guy on when on, in the fucking mosh pit we didn't use that name by the way mosh pit um no it, i mean what was it even that didn't, called at that time? That was slam no dancing. Yeah, slam, slam dancing, dancing or just a stupid name. Getting slamming. in there. Slam. There's that song on. Uh, <laughs> there's that song on. Um, uh, this is Boston, not LA. Was it? Was it Decanates or the Groinoids? Like, gonna slam, gonna slam, gonna slam. Yeah. So, this so music I haven't listened to in like two decades either. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 So, like, so I told you, I got kicked out of Jerry's Kids, mm. and I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. But then I tried out for. Um, for DYS, oh, which was Dave Smalley, John Anastas, and you know, I was friend, I was really good friends with this guy. And I forget his name, but the drummer Dave, I forget his last name. Mm-hmm. But I was going to be their guitarist. But it's funny that night I went home, and like the shit hit the fan at home, and like you know, this this situation that had been brewing at home, mm-hmm. and it's just like I you know, I called up John and I said I I, I can't do this, you know, it's like just too much crazy shit going on here I'm yeah like, and i was disappointed because you know i mean you know i, I would love to you know i didn't really like like it was like really it was none of those kids really understood music of course no the fighting was priority one two was the music well the fighting see the fighting didn't really start in earnest until like a little bit later so like um 81, 82. And I'll tell you the other thing that was the huge impetus for this. So there was a couple impetuses for this. One of which is that every everybody had before had been like huge into the clash. And then the clash started doing like, you know, Rolling Stones kind of shit. You know what yeah. I mean? And every and everybody was just like felt so personally betrayed by that. They still go see them. Don't, you know, don't don't mistake that. I mean, they still go see those shows and stuff, but mm-hmm. they're all just like totally disgusted by all that kind of those records, combat rock stuff they will make. But the other thing um, that really fired things off was Black Flag played at the Paradise, an all ages show. Uh, I think it was in August 81. And this was the lineup with Dez. So this was Dez, Chuck Dukowski, Robbo, and Greg Ginn. This is my, this is my Black Flag. You know what I mean? I, that was the right. shit that, you know that and they just lit the fire they mm-hmm. you know after that it was just like let's how are we going to do this how are we going to get this shit going you know because that was like nobody had ever seen anything like that that was just like you just totally new kind of thing and i'll tell you something i remember the weekend or the week that damage came out the, the album with rollins came out mm-hmm. right and we were listening to it on brian betzka's stereo had this bitchin' ass stereo, and we're all just like, this, this sucks. Oh, we're all just man. like, Black Flag is over. Like every everybody I knew, I'm not kidding, everybody I knew just totally lost interest in Black Flag when Rollins joined the band. We we're just like, this sucks. And then when they started doing all that kind of like stoogish shit, like that proto grunge stuff, yes. like my war and stuff. I don't know, I swear to God, I don't know anybody, anybody who liked that music. Anybody. And we're talking like kids who like you know, uh, nervous breakdown, uh, jealous again, mm-hmm. uh, Louis, Louis six pack, you know, yeah. like those first handful. And then of course, police story on let me jelly beans, black flag were gods. They were 
gods. And I'm telling you something, everybody just said, fuck this with, with damage. And that was, that was like, it's so weird because for a lot of other scenes, that was like their, that was their jump off point. Oh but yeah. Anyways. Henry Rollins was the, is the memory that most have when, if they even know black flag. Right. It's, yeah. 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 I, that's, I, I, you know, I remember buying, I, I, I got the state, he was in this band called state of alert SOA. And I remember go, buying, like I bought all those fucking records when they came out, like all the discord stuff and then all, all the stuff that's coming up from England, um, exploited discharge, mm-hmm. um, you know, GBH, yeah, all, all that shit. You know what I mean? And, um, and then I ended up like making a mint selling that stuff in the nineties. But anyway, <laughs> you know, cause I had like all these original EPs like Blitz and Blitzkrieg and, and disorder. Oh, wow. I mean, you name it, you name it, Cronjen, everybody. Um, but anyway, um, what was my point? Yeah. So, so that really like people just were not, that's when like minor threat really became the move. That was like everybody's loyalties shifted from black flag to minor threat. Right? Mm-hmm. But then minor threat kind of like they start falling apart. See, the thing was, is that hardcore back then was high school. That was yeah. the shit you went to in high school. And then when you got out of high school, you know what I mean? That was and, what new wave was for. <laughs> But what happened to a lot of Boston bands when they all got out of high school, whatever, or, or out of college, whatever. So like, um, you know, like Rick Jones and, and Bob Sensi, they were a few years older than us. Um, but anyway, so when the, the bulk of the audience kind of gets out of high school, that's when you have like SSD does How We Rock. They try to turn into a metal band and just kind of fail miserably. Um, mm-hmm. Like Gang Green were able to make the leap because like Brian Betzger, uh, who I think isn't like one of the best drummers ever. I'm not kidding. That guy was amazing. I, it's funny because I would go, you got to check out this this hardcore band. And, and like this back in the like, 80s and 90s, people like, yeah, whatever. And I, no, 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 seriously, listen to this drummer. You know, it's like, yeah, I know what they do. They just do. It's like a 2-2 beat. You know what I mean? It makes it sound fast because it's 2-2. I'm like, no, no, it's not Brian Betzger. And like every, I used to love like playing like Jerry's Kids Is This My World. And like people would be like, everybody was just like, like, how is he playing that fucking fast? I mean, he was just ridiculously fast. So then, uh, you know, so Gang Green sort of, you know, they they win the Boston Rock and Roll Rumble, I think in '86. Um, but uh, you know, Chris started having a lot of substance abuse problems and stuff. Well, he had them before, but um, but then you sort of have like the next wave, and you have like um, who is it like uh, Moving Targets? You remember Moving Targets? It sounds familiar. I'm sure yeah, they were they were a really good band, but you know, but then like so like the hardcore thing dies, and a lot of these bands, like the FUs become the straw dogs. Mm. Um Jerry's kids do like they kind of like they don't go metal, they sort of do like a more tradi- like traditional uh, punk kind of deal. Mm. But um you know, it was just it was just kind of over. You know what I mean? Like I mean, look at the uh minor threats broken up, black flag breaks up. Um Bad Brain sort of turned into a groove metal band, but, yeah. but then HR's in prison. I'll tell you one of the show and one of the shows that blew everybody away was uh, Bad Brains. I think it was at Bun Ratties. Um, Negative Effects opened up. Uh, Rick Ocasek was there, by the way, because he was going to produce their album. Oh, and um, I was uh, I was in the pit during um, during Negative Effects, and I got slammed by somebody's boot right in the mouth. And I'm just like, oh. 
blood just pouring out of my face. I go back to the bar and like, I'm, I'm like taking all these like bar napkins, trying to get all this blood that's coming out of my mouth. And Rick, Rick, okay. Six is like, what the hell? I mean, I'm like 15 years old. Right? Yeah. And what I had to do since all my teeth were knocked loose is that I had to, um, I, I pretended that I fell at, on, on the stairs at school and I went to the nurse and I'm like, Oh, I got to go to the dentist. I just fell on the stairs, you know, cause I don't want my mother to know that I've gotten booted in the face, but that was one of the best shows I ever saw. I mean, the, the <laughs> that's pure usually how it goes. <laughs> pure level of energy that, that, they, that band put forward. And it was funny because they were like, um, before the show, they're all out in the van. They're all just like, smoking these giant blondes and they're all like oh yeah rastafari you know they're doing all and we're like oh my god what, 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 just watch the whalers now right it's such a oh man that's such a weird transition <laughs> and uh but they just everybody just uh, ah, they couldn't believe it so that was one of the seminal shows was that show another that's seminal insane. show was uh mission of burma at uh bradford hotel ballroom there was supposed to be their last you know they they got back together later on but um, they played at um, Bradford Hotel Barham. Uh, Negative Effects opened up again. Um, and I think Dangerous Birds, who was one of those sort of arty new wave bands. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but that was a big show. Cause like, you know, people, kids were going so crazy that the, uh, the hotel called in the cops. And you can see videos on this online. This is like phalanx of cops lining the stage. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Uh, because it was just, it was getting so crazy, but you got to remember like kids are, you know, I mean, 15, 16 years old. I mean, nobody had tattoos, yeah. you know, nobody had piercings. I mean, these were just, you know, we were all just kids. I mean, we were kids, we were babies, you know, Jerry's kids. I mean, the oldest member of the band at the time was like 18 years old, 19 right. years old. You know what I mean? It's like, these are, these are teenagers. This was mm-hmm. a teenage scene. Um, and I remember like, um, I remember when I, shit, I remember, I think I went, yeah, I did. I went to the one recording sessions. I, yeah, that's right. I remember that night driving into to Boston because Jerry's kids were going to, I think it was one of, or one of the only recording sessions they did for This Is Boston, Not LA. I, yeah, that's right. I remember going in that night into, into town because they had to record late at night because, um, that, you know, Mike Drees, who owned Newberry Comics, was paying for all this, and he didn't want to pay like for like prime hours. So you had to record like late at night. But yeah. um, but anyway, so uh, so Dicky Dicky Barrett from um, uh, you know, he was always around. Mm-hmm. Um, and his brother was always around. You know, they were both like prep school kids. You know, um, boy school. Uh, yeah, I went to a Zavarian high school for two years, and let me oh, tell you, you where? I, right in Shrewsbury, St. No, John's. No yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, they had no stairs because fairies could fly. I heard it all all the time because it was all boys' school. But um, I'll tell you, man. Yeah, uh, years later, at all kinds of metal and hardcore shows, I would see so many faces from those two years at that Zavarian school. It was all the higher preppy kids that were super into it. I was one of those middle-class kids that was drawn to that contrast big time. But I mean, Mm. middle-class or not, I felt completely disaffected because of the way I thought about things anyway. But, um, but yeah, I hate to cut this a little shorter. I mean, we could go on 
for a lot longer and maybe we could do a part two because I feel like there's more to be said, but. Um, Am I getting like a little too granular here? Not uh, at all. I don't think so. It's just, unfortunately, I get, we got to cut it right around now because I'm going a little late and my, my kid needs stories read to him. I'm at that stage right now. So. Oh, okay. Where, where, yeah. where are you living now? What's that, man? Where are you living now? I'm up in uh, Lemonster near Fitchburg. So I remember, and there was many of these around, but Twin City Hardcore between Fitchburg and 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 Lemonster back in the day. You know. When so we, when did when, you start going to shows? Like, what year was that? I started going to shows way late. So I was probably 2000, 99, 98, something like that. We'd go to like the fuck what's what was it called there was a place in worcester that held shows and it's not the hardcore that you grew up with by any means that was kind of like you said that died and a lot of different genres came in and took over all these different forms of metal core and rap core and shit like that but the the audience it was all musically i mean the thing is is like that was all music yeah it was exciting to be around the scene yeah, it was all like, the audience, man. We were all the same kind of kids that wanted to take out aggression on everything. Yeah, it was the espresso bar in Worcester. That was like our local spot where people would just break everything and <laughs> cops were called a lot and shit like that. But, well, let, me, let me tell you, I, I want to tell you a story, though. One last story, because this sort of sure. speaks to, you know, how I think Braintree was, was kind of like the um, spiritual center of Bo- mm-hmm. the first wave of Boston hardcore. Cause like I said, I mean, Jerry's kids gangrene and siege, right? I mean, yeah, uh, that's, those are it's a trifecta. pretty, <laughs> that's kind of a trifecta, right? Yeah. Um, but um, so, so I was going to shows a lot, but there was a certain period that I just started getting bored. I was getting mm-hmm. really bored with it because the music really wasn't any good. Um, and I remember like one of the shows I saw, I saw the misfits play the channel. Nice. And well, yeah, but they played too long and it's like, it just sounded bad. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, they, they had Ro- Robo, I thought was a great drummer, but, and I remember hanging out with uh, Glenn Danzig and talking comics with him before the show and stuff. He was a total, <laughs> total geek. Uh, That's this cool. before, this before the steroids and stuff. Yeah. yeah but anyway, <laughs> you know, um, so, little guy with the short hair. <laughs> yeah. So I started hanging out. So I started hanging out with um, like a lot of my brain tree guys you know i had all these sort of different circles of friends and like you know these are guys who like their craziness was not performative you know they didn't they weren't acting like they were on camera they just were like have a lot of energy that they just had to get rid of so so what happened is that i remember like um choke from Slapshot and he was negative facts and last drives and stuff and actually if you there's actually a picture of me in the um in the CD tray of the Negative Effects Last Rite CD. That's me really? choke at yeah at the gallery, at the media watch media workshop yeah. Nice. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so he came out and he came out to Bob Sensi's house, and because we a lot of times we'd meet at Bob Sensi's house on like Saturday night because his, his grandmother would make pizza and stuff. We'd all just like eat their pizza and stuff and go from there. But he came out with us one night and choke came out with us and it's funny because we're all just like suburban kids were all dressed like just t-shirts and jeans and stuff yeah. and he's coming on he's got like the leather jacket and like all <laughs> black and the boots and the shit you know he's just like he's he's choke he's he's, he's the image <laughs> so we he came out with us and we had this thing called um high-speed car chase we used to do and what high-speed car chase was is that we'd drive around and look for like um 
I don't know. Like, I don't even know how we chose our targets, but we'd like just start throwing cans or fruit or something at these cars and until somebody would chase us. So, <laughs> so that was That's our amazing. Day. Our high speed car chase, like the stupidest fucking most dangerous. This must be thing a Massachusetts thing or something, man. The antics yeah, 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 that yeah, I yeah. got into and you, yes, very similar. <laughs> yeah. So, like, so he came out on a night uh, that we were doing high speed car chase. And we, I think that, I think that was the night we went up to, like, in the Blue Hills, there was like a lover's lane area. Mm-hmm. And we went up there and we're just like, um, one of our guys, this, this skater kid named Sean, uh, stole a, um, like a, a box of fruit and we're just like fucking whipping it at cars and stuff. And like, so we just like drive up to like a car, like, you know, love on lover's lane, just start pelting it with fruit and stuff. And then if they didn't want to like start chasing us, we just go like, just crazy shit. Right. And, uh, so, and then we, we, we did get into a couple of good, uh, chases that night. Mm-hmm. And then we we dropped um, choke. I think we dropped him off at the train station. And then we find out he, he said, um, "Those Braintree kids are fucking crazy." <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love that because I, I wanted to say earlier when you originally brought it up the the fact that Braintree is like the spiritual you know, origin point godfather of Boston hardcore. And that only makes sense to me on like a fractal level, like of all music. I mean, I don't know how many times as a younger person, I was furious every time I heard a metal or hardcore riff that I loved from a decade earlier on some butt rock band being played on WAAF, man. It was just infuriating (laughs) to see how it always moves toward like counterculture inevitably like moves towards the the culture in that way it's something oh, maybe it's yeah. maybe it is at the root of it it has something to do with that contrast and even if it's contrived and and uh you know predictive programming of some kind they they they're so aware of our desire for that contrast maybe yeah well you know things it's a cycle you know yeah. like one, one of the things that always kind of like surprised me when i was a kid is that I'd see like some really boring stand-up comic on TV and then find out that, oh yeah, Buddy Hackett was like, he, he was like the king of the dirty jokes back in like the fifties and sixties, you know, like mm. I was like hilarious, you know, or, you know, just all these people that just seemed like they were just sucked, sucked into the system and just totally declawed. Right. Yeah. And, um, it, it's hard, but it's a cycle. Everything sort of starts off edgy and dangerous. Yeah. And then just slowly but surely gets absorbed. And, like, that's one of the things, like I said, one of the impetus behind um, hardcore is, like, we're all just so just, I mean, everybody's like, what what are the fucking Clash doing? Like, you know, I I remember seeing them in 1980 uh, on the London Calling Tour. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, it was just like, it was like getting hit by a fucking train. (laughs) I mean, it it, it was just like this wall of fucking pure noise, just hitting you like a hammer and then you like hear these records and it's like oh yeah then you have hammersmith palais it's like completely different yeah yeah and um but um yeah joe strummer didn't have a giant mural on some build on some building back when it was like the well i gotta tell you i gotta tell you so this so like um all the hardcore kids went to go see those shows in 82 when they were touring for combat rock. Yeah. But, um, so you had like the second mini wave. So it was all these kids that like, I, I knew from like the weight room at school and stuff. And, and like, 
Oh, they all showed up when the Clash played in '84 with that new lineup that was sort of like their back to basics kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was like that was like just take the wildest hardcore show that you can imagine and then put it in a fucking ten thousand seat arena. It was the Private Civic Center, wow. and it was just like it was the most insane thing I've ever experienced. I mean, p- people would just pound like punch each other. <laughs> <laughs> Just all these like fights and like the bouncers were so pissed off because they just got totally, um, totally overwhelmed, you know, yeah, and uh, they're not expecting that. <laughs> it, it, it was like, it was, uh, you know, I call that my punk rock prom, you know, because, uh, you know, <laughs> me and all my friends from high school, it was like punk rock prom. But, um, but like I said, I mean, the thing with the hardcore thing is that it just seemed like, again, like so performative to me. And it always mm-hmm. seemed to me like, these guys sort of wearing the get-ups, you know, with the boots and the braces and the leather jackets and everything like that. It just seemed to me like so, um, like, again, like it was a pose, you know, and, and it, yeah. it, it was theatrical and it was like the real wild shit would be out in the burbs, you know, like all these crazy, yes. crazy Gen X latchkey kids just totally losing their shit. You know what I mean? Damn but, right. um, you know, so the other thing, you know, I want to tell you, but like, you know, Braintree was just like this weird, uh, you know, it was like Twin Peaks. My friend called it Twin Peaks East. And, um, <laughs> but uh, we, you know, again, we like, we just took it off a of granted. Like, you know, one of the stories I've told is that I'm, you know, place I used to play basketball at, uh, right, like r- literally right across the street, um, Whitey Bulger had like one of his goons whacked and Jeez. thrown in the dumpster. You know what I mean? And this was like, this we were playing basketball. Yeah. Know? And like, I mean, it happened overnight, obviously. But it's just like, that was kind of just the ambience you just grew up in. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, particularly in East Bay, you know, other parts of Braintree just might have been, a, might as well have been a totally different world. But East Braintree to me was just like, it was fertile ground for, for hardcore punk rock because yeah. of, you know, the, the, the industrial fucking wasteland feeling that you had. And then like, all the violence you know just like trying to like not get your ass kicked on the way home from school by just like some randos you know what i mean just yeah like, the stories you've told remind me of the movie suburbia many people don't even i think there's another more popular movie with the same name that kind of uh i know i know exactly the, the punk movie that i'm talking you know what yeah, i'm talking Penel- about Penelope's theorist. it was yes. she made it after she did um decline of western civilization yeah so man. um yeah but um so I left, I left Braintree. Last hardcore show I went to was a rather notorious show. It was Gangrene and Jerry's Kids at the Paradise. And it was kind of like the next wave were coming in. And that was like a lot of the street kids and the homeless kids and the, a lot of like the neo-Nazi shit going on. Like yeah. That stuff get, started getting really, um, it was always, it started seeping in like 82, 83, but it, by the 84, 85, it was just, it sucked. Because all those all they did was just show up to start fights. They didn't care about the music. They didn't care uh, about yeah. the scene. They just wanted to fucking beat people up. You know what I mean? And it's like, I, I got, I got fucking beat up at that show. I mean, a lot of people getting beat up and then the bouncers wanted to beat up Rick Jones, you know, Jerry's kids. It was just, it was just ridiculous. And it was just like, this is not fun. Right. You know what I mean? This is, stu- this is stupid. Yeah. You know, it's not sort of like, it's not sort of like, you know, a wild kind of art scene with like violence at the margins. This is just a, a, a violent scene with art at the margins. I remember going yeah. to see a show. I remember going to see a show in '84, and I think it was in like in Roslyn, not Roslindale, was it like uh, might have been actually it was Roslindale or Hyde Park. You know, one of these kind of like places that the only 
you know, the only reason you'd go there was to get your ass kicked. You know what I'm saying? So we went to go see this this show, this hardcore show. It wasn't even, it was like more punk rock show, but like, I remember we were watching these bands play and like afterwards I go out, I go, you know, I go out into the alley and like the, the band are getting their fucking faces beat in. Like, and I, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what was going on. And it, the weird thing was, is that it was like, this sort of like this, it was like a VFW hall and there was an outbuilding, like an, sort of like an like a annex or something. And they're inside this annex and they're just like, these fucking guys are just, this three-piece band, they're getting their fucking heads kicked in. I'm like going, Jesus. what is going on here? Like, what <laughs> is this? Like, what am I, this is a nightmare world. Like, why? You know what the what the hell is this? I mean, I don't I don't know. Uh, it sounds maybe, so co opted. Like it sounds like this. It's not even co opted. It's, it's just not. What it's, it's what you were saying in the beginning about like the lead and the gas and and just the just this life circumstances. You know that put everyone there. You know. Well, yeah, um, but like I said, it just got real. It got real boring. Yeah, you know, I got real old and like between like all the bands starting to play like inept metal and all the stupid violence that was just everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, just being out of high school and just, you know, I, just, I, didn't, I didn't want to deal with it anymore. Actually, I think the last show, I remember going to see um, Gangrene and the Circle Jerks on New Year's Eve, 1985 at this shitty club in, in Dover, New Jersey called the Showplace. And uh, there was nobody there. It was like dead. I mean, so this is like, 1985 and like when black flag were on their last tour when it was just like rollins and again and a couple like hired guns hmm. and they're doing all that jazz like, what fucking is this what kind of shit. music yeah. is this it's just yeah, trash man. it's just Freaking is such a great again is such a fucking asshole and i'll tell you who else is a total <laughs> asshole is jerry uh not jerry uh jello biafra is a total fucking asshole too just absolute <laughs> asshole uh yeah there's, there's some shit he pulled but anyway um yeah, it's so just you left like, hardcore behind and eventually you got into like the Katow twins or whatever, right? That's like the kind the of Katow, Katow. Yeah, what, what are they called? The Cocktail those, Twins. The Cocktail Twins. <laughs> yeah, but I, see, I got into them in, in 83. Uh, I got into them when I was still when I was still going to shows and stuff. See, that's like the thing that, is like I, contrast I, go to, for you. <laughs> I go to these hardcore shows, right? But it got to the point, you know, past like mid 82, I wasn't listening to hardcore at home right yeah. There's, yeah i just remember buying a lot of these records and just like just sucked you know it's yeah. it's music you had to experience in person yes you know damn I mean? right man i would agree but it made, you know like there would be bands like uh like I, I gbh i think made great records and that was one of the best shows i ever saw i saw gbh at, at the rat and that was awesome that's wild, man. Well, listen, that I need to cut this off, man. I, I, this has been fun. This has been awesome. I would love to go even further because we could, I think we should at some point because this, all these stories kind of lead into like where we could go with it with, you know, how heavy music has evolved over time and what aspects of it have clearly been kind of taken in by the system and used by the system. But I think we'll have to do it maybe another time but this has been really awesome. And I really appreciate all the time you've given me, man. Um, yeah. If you uh, wouldn't mind telling my audience where they could find you, that would be Secret great. blogspot.com. Hell yeah. And that's where everything is. That's the hub, right? Well, you're going to get to, you know, we need to be, I mean, I've got a Patreon and I've mm -hmm. got a Facebook group 
and I've got a Discord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got all these little, uh, in you know, I have some uh, private groups. Uh, you know, I've got a bunch of stuff going on. But, deep divers, uh, hell yeah. The deep divers. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Secret Sun Blog, um, at Secret Sun Blog. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm not too hard to find. You know, yeah. until they start putting the boot down on all our necks. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it always comes in waves, so we'll see what happens. I hear a lot of rumblings, so. Yeah. But for now, we'll keep doing what you're doing. I love following so, you on Twitter. You say a lot of great stuff, so. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And thank you for listening to an old man while I walk down memory lane. I you know, it's it's a different generation. It's a different decade, but, like, I feel a lot of kinship to the stories you were telling, and it was really cool, man. I, I love getting a deeper history into the music that I, I grew up with partially, especially was so attracted to that contrast like we were talking about, you know. So thank you. Really You're appreciate welcome. it. All right, everybody. Well, this has been real. It's been awesome. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And go check out Chris's stuff. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself. But don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats swimming together, cactus carrier. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you meddle with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>